Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 38, continuing our discussion of Nagarjuna's root verses of the Middle Way. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined as always by the squad. You guys want to say hi? Hey, it's Aura Taxonist. And Yamnaya Mindset here. And today we are beginning our discussion with an analysis of the self, which is a really important topic it's a really um i think it's 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 not just you know i in my mind i've always thought it's kind of funny or ironic maybe or or one of these sort of like you know you could you could write a very clever like you know 20 30 page essay for some university level text if you were so inclined and i i just probably never will but of um you know uh how how it's kind of like the central teaching the the core teaching if you will of buddhism is that there is no self and this religion buddhism that you know like the one thing that sort of defines it more than any other thing is that there is no one thing that defines anything really when you right, get right down to it um i also thought it was kind of ironic in this regard that um you know buddhism survived and in fact thrives pretty much everywhere other than the place where it originated which is india um, there's a kind of irony, a sort of historical irony layered on top of the philosophical irony. But, uh, anyway, the, when, when people talk about like no self, which is interestingly, high, that's one please. thing that it shares with Christianity. Yeah. That's well, I think Christianity survived better in, in like the Holy land or at least, you know, contiguous areas than, than, um, but yeah, it's, it's obviously Christianity has always been, not always, has long been um, more, it, it's th- th- flourished and thrived, you know, outside of where it first kind of popped up. And for and, pretty much the same reason, too, if you think about that. What do you, what do you <laughs> mean? I'm, maybe I'm Muslims. Not, <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yes, definitely. Yes, Muslims uh, wiped out Christianity in the Holy Land and they wiped out um, Buddhism in India. That's correct. I uh, didn't mean to derail you there. Though. No, 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 that's fine. That's a good, that's a good, no, it, it's just an interesting, I agree. It's an interesting kind of uh, thing. But the, but the, where I was going with this was that, um, you know, it's something that often, often um, people get tripped up on. Um, there's a, there's a word in Sanskrit that sort of encapsulates the philosophical point, which is anatman, um, which is often translated no self, which is very literal. It's not wrong not wrong it's, it's actually you know it, it works in a way um but it can be a little unclear to people like what um what does no self really mean and the the key point what what i would say is and i you know it's 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 like it's important to understand and, and this kind of comes out to some extent in this chapter which is why i mean i think it's really the kind of key point of this chapter and and one of the real key points of this text as a whole is when when the buddha says or nagarjuna says you know there is no there's, there is no self right he's not saying you do not exist he's not saying your experience is not experience that would be a very very just completely wrong-headed and i think that people often say like oh buddhism is nihilistic and they say that for some you know reasons that are ultimately often not very good in the sense that they don't you know, necessarily know what the hell they're talking about um but it, it's understandable at a certain level why they would come to that conclusion because yeah it's true you know the buddhism tradition buddhist tradition talks about how there is no such thing as a self 
the, the key point is, you know, when it's saying there's no self, when he says no self, what that means is that there's no one particular individual thing, one like essence, right? In the same way that we've been talking now, this is, I guess, the eighth episode on this text you know we've been talking all the way throughout about essences like this is the you know where the text starts and he keeps coming back to them we'll get back to that you know later on if we make it all the way to we're trying to get to chapter 20 today um what he's saying is that there's no there's no real essence of yourself what is there instead there is a a continuum a continuum of causes and effects at a basic level, we can talk, we can say some of these, some of the elements of this continuum are physical, your like physical body, you know, your physical sense organs, and so on. Um, some of the components are mental. This is your, um, you know, your, the stream of your mind or the, your cognitions, like the visual consciousness and the, and the auditory consciousness and so on. Um, the, the point is that these causal factors or these you know this continuum of of, you know um, physical matter and mental activity um, mutually conditions each other at every moment and so there's a constant sort of um, causal feedback loop happening where you know what's going on in your mind affects what's going on in your body what's going on in your body affects what's going on in your mind what's going on in your body in one moment affects what's going on in your body the next moment and so on and so rather than and obviously all of this i mean you could even just say at the physical forget the mental obviously our minds change minute by minute second by second and so on but but even at the physical level i mean i always like to go back to this you know buddhism it's it's extremely important in buddhism that everything is momentary all kind of if you could say like buddhism buddhism is basically an atomic theory of reality there are atoms in the sense of indivisible particles which are the basic irreducible constituents of material reality and these are changing, as you know, contemporary science says. Um, literally, every as, as small a unit of time, you know, there's some hypothesis of like, can you? Can, is there such a thing as a smallest unit of time? And um, that's an interesting, maybe you know, scientific question. But whether there is or not, however small you want to go, uh, at a subatomic level, everything is changing, moment by moment. But literally, like however small the unit of time, Planck length. If there's a smallest unit of time, it would be called the Planck length. Some just absurdly small amount of time, like, like a fraction of a picosecond. And even at that kind of a time scale, the, the, the fundamental particles that constitute material reality, what we think of as material reality, are changing every single moment, every single yeah, instant. Yeah, it's an ever-vanishing horizon of, yeah, exactly. of, of movement, right? Like yeah. no matter how, how far we try to trace it down, um, the... It, it, the trying to find like the thing where where everything's in one place it keeps vanishing like we, we can't get there and the the suggestion of course or the the rational inf- inference you can make is that there because there is no such thing that that there will never be a, a yeah there's time, no there's know, no that, there's no this is like the point the kind of the end point at a certain level of, of Nagarjuna's analysis in this text is like we're preoccupied there, philosophers in a kind of overt way are preoccupied with with this but also in a, in a in a less overt way maybe we are all of us ordinary beings like caught up moment we just sort of assume like if i were to try to point at like an essence as like something some one indivi- you know one indivisible irreducible thing that makes me me for example that we would be able to find one and we just sort of you know 
go about our business with that assumption in place. And what he's doing is he's showing not only that, you know, that assumption is wrong, but that, you know, the people who are maybe a little more sophisticated, who are philosophers or whatever, who are interested in, in this question of trying to identify that and, and really, you know, work it out in, in rigorous analytical terms, um, that it just doesn't work, actually, that, that it, you can, you, there's never an end to that process, to that rash, that process of rational analysis. There's, there is, you, that's very well put, that there's an ever-receding horizon of analysis. It's just you never get to the end. You never reach a point where you're like, ah, and that's it. And then, I, and you're like, ah, okay, and then, and then it's the giving up. That's I mean, another kind of key point here is it's, it's the having recognized that, giving up the search for that is, is like one way to think about what meditation means in this kind of a context well, i'm getting a little yeah, ahead what, of myself what the, but, what the buddhist project is another yeah. way to think another way to think about it is uh as moderns um even though we're not strict materialists far from it um on this show i i do find it's pretty easy for most modern people to think like strict materialists because we're so saturated in that um in those philosophical assumptions in the modern world and so if you talk about the human body and say where is you know, let's say a strict materialist who thinks that consciousness is an epiphenomenon or it doesn't exist or something and that but that there, there's the idea that the, the self is okay it's it's coterminous with the body right but then if you cut off someone's toe are they no longer themselves and it's like no but you could maybe argue that they're one tiny little fraction less their self but okay where is the self is it in the heart well no because you can put in a pacemaker is it in the brain people tend to say ah, ah yes it is but actually there's no part of the brain that you couldn't you know at a small enough well, a, a common amount sort of, you could yeah. like remove remove uh let's say i remove a few brain cells here or there Eat, there is no one set of a uh, small set of brain cells that you could remove and then the person would die right and so you could do that rigorously like little sets of brain cells one by one uh and you know replace the ones you take out and take out a different set and at no point would that person die or stop being there so it's like okay where is that person and to wrap up the analogy it's just that for buddhist it that that holds true also on sort of the psychic level or the or the non-material level the the uh, felt and lived experience of consciousness, we sort of have this mental picture that we, uh, that there is a me somewhere in my experience. But then when you look around for it, like in the toe and the brain and the heart, when you look around for it in your aggregates, et cetera, you, what you realize is that it's, it's not there. There is no one. Exactly. Well, and, and, and furthermore, I mean, on the brain thing, obviously this is something that we're sort of conditioned for deep, you know, intellectual historical reasons to think in these terms. And that's, that's fine to an extent, but it's interesting if, you know, it, it, this example of um, removing brain cells, people have occasionally, you know, traumatic brain injuries that change their personality in such dramatic ways that, you know, people who knew them, spouses and so on, children, you know, whoever, like, that's not, you know, people get divorced. Some, there was one case, I think, of a guy who got, there's a very famous case of a guy who got a rail spike. He was a, he was a railroad worker, he got a spike through his head, and it didn't kill him, but it just completely changed his personality. He became, like, unable i think to I, I can't remember all the details but basically his his he, he um you know this is not uncommon for people to be like completely lose all sense of um uh, time preference essentially like they, they they lose the ability to think of longer term consequences they become very easily agitated very violent and you know people end up getting they're like i i married someone and this person like they look the same they talk the same they sound the same they, you know, they, at some level, you know, you want to say like they're the same person at some level, but are they, you know, they feel like, I don't know this person, this person is a stranger, this is not the person that I married. Even without traumatic brain injury, people sometimes say that. And, and the, the point being that 
when when Buddhism when the Buddhist tradition says there is no self, it's not saying that. We'll, we'll get to what maybe some some sense of what it is saying, but but it, the the point is that like it's the contin there is all there is is a continuum. All there is is a con- like you know at one moment this person was a certain way, at another moment they're another way. Then they die, then they're reborn. They continue that process doesn't stop at death. The continuum goes on. It's just you know there, so there is a continuum, and 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 at a certain so the in in the classical literature when you want to talk about like a person. You don't usually use the word for person. Um, you use the word continuum, santana. Like that's sort of you know. So you want to do the extent that we can talk about it. Like is a continue like is a continuum a single thing? Like by definition, no. And that's the key point. And and the term continuum here is very helpful because I mean, ev- the other thing you can think about is is even within ourselves. I mean, if we consider what our personality might have been like, say, ten or fifteen years ago versus now as far as maybe what we enjoyed, preferences, um, it's constantly changing. There's no enduring essence that really can be said to, it's impossible to say that these two things are exactly the same because in so many ways they just aren't. And kind of cheeky to put it this way, but I think it's true is that the most enduring thing for most people is the delusion that there is a, an enduring thing. Like that is well, the most so that constant. Gets us, yes. And that gets us straight into. Um, so so I wanted to talk about this. This was like sort of the the the, the one of the one of the like there's a there's a conceptual way of looking at this. And there's like a non conceptual, let's say, way of looking at this. The conceptual way is what we've been talking about is like we just sort of go about our lives. You know, when you talk about when I say the word I, I just sort of assume that there's something that the word I means or refers to and I don't have to think about it. Now sometimes people get, you know, philosophically interested in identity or whatever and they come up with various theories and and um but the point is that th- there's there's in addition to so there's like at the conceptual level, like Nagarjuna says in the first verse, if the self were the skunda skundas means aggregates. We've talked about this in a previous program, but basically the there's five types of aggregate in broad strokes they're they're, they're fall into two categories which is the physical and the mental and uh the point is that like if the if the self were the 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 aggregates the 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 aggregate of of physical and mental processes um then it would come participate in coming to be and passing away if it were something other than the skandhas it would be something having the defining characteristic of a non-skanda so whether you you know you it's it's impossible to say like so for example our physical forms as we discussed are temp are are, are um, momentary right they're impermanent they're changing at the subatomic level at the very least and also obviously in in more um visible ways you know moment by moment day by day year by year we change we grow and so on the self to say that yourself is your physical aggregate or any other aggregate any other you know physical or mental process happening like that just obviously just doesn't even make sense like it's how can the whole point of positing a self is that it's something that doesn't change um so that's you but but then if you say okay well the self is something other than those physical and mental processes like okay but then you're literally not even talking about anything right yeah what the hell is what the hell would you be talking about it just doesn't make any sense Okay, so that sort of like deals with the, I, I would say, the, the kind of conceptual question here of like, we have this concept of a self, we, you know, we think in terms of a self, and, and that can be useful to some extent in terms of going about our daily lives, but if we actually investigate, we find it doesn't make any sense. Okay, he says, the self not existing, how will there be, quote, what belongs to the self? There is no mine and no I because of the cessation of self and that which pertains to the self. So uh, w- once we have 
understood that there is no such thing as a self, not really, that the that that this thing we call a self is is a sort of conceptual projection or superimposition that we're making onto um, certain features of our experience. Um, you know, this idea of like, well, there's a me and a my, there's my stuff. Like, what does that really mean? Now, again, it's important to understand Nagarjuna is not saying like, okay, therefore, you know, communism, because there's no such thing as personal property. Like, that, you know, you, 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 you like, yes, it's true that this idea of mine, you know, doesn't make it a certain kind of philosophical sense. That doesn't mean that it's not useful in certain ways. Um, I just wanted to, to, to highlight that. Then he gets to this, and this is where I wanted to go with this because you mentioned and, and, and what I would call the sort of non-conceptual um, cash value of this. He says, and who is without mine and I sense? This is the the is a tech, the word uh, ahamkara, which is like a technical Sanskrit term. It comes up in yoga. People who are like really deep into yoga and um, will know this word ahamkara or I think what it's called sometimes like eye make like the most literal thing you could translate it as would be eye making, right? And this is like a this is like a samkhya concept. It's a concept in yoga. It's a concept in a lot of different Indian traditions. Um, so that's what he's calling eye sense, the sense of being yourself. The, who, who, like a person without a sense of being themselves is not, does not exist, is not found. One who sees that which is without mind and eye sense does not see. It's that's a little bit of a clunky translation. It's not terrible, um, but but basically he's saying like, you know, he who like sees, he who sees without a sense of being himself without a sense of having his, my, myself, with, uh, the one who sees without like me and mine, he doesn't see. Okay, what does that really mean? What does that really mean? You know, this is maybe, I'm, I'm bringing in some Yogachara stuff. I used to, on my old Twitter account that got banned, I, I had myself as a Yogachara supremacist and I'll, I'll stick by that. So I may be putting a little bit of Yogachara spin on this, but what I, what I would say that Nagarjuna's means here it's something that was actually is actually you know people often talk about like a distinction between Nagarjuna like or Madhyamaka and Yogacara, but really these things should be understood as kind of two wings of the same bird, so to speak. And uh, what he's saying is, you know, ordinarily our um, experience is structured into like there's a subjective aspect of our experience and there's an objective aspect of our experience. There's a part of our experience or, you know, that seems as though it's like, um, I am the cameraman and I am looking out through the, my, my eyes, which are the camera, like out at the world. Right. And so there's like a, there's like a kind of interior sense and a kind of externally oriented sense, right? This is, or, or, or feature, this is, this seems like this is how our, um, ordinary everyday experience and in fact is how our ordinary everyday experience is it's certainly how mine is maybe i'm maybe there's some Arya bodhisattvas in the audience i certainly hope so that would be great if so please send us your blessings and uh so on but for everyone else uh, you know the um the way we nor normally perceive the world is as though like i am in here and the world is out there and the, the question then is like okay so what what yogachara is all about fundamentally is understanding that that duality that sense of being yourself and 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 like 
that's the thing is the sense of being yourself. It's a non-conceptual. It's not like you're, you know, when I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking now, let's say, out of the computer screen, right? I'm not thinking conceptually like, you know, the computer screen is out there. Like that, I might, if I reflected on my experience, come to that conclusion. But it, it's it's not like a thought that I'm having. It's not a concept that I'm putting out. It it's It's built into the nature of the experience that I'm having that it seems as though... You know, my monitor is out there and I am in here, right? I am me and the world is out there. And so the question is, is like, okay, given that, and this is a very, this is like a fundamental point for, for really Mahayana Buddhism in general, especially, but really just across the board, um, that sense of duality, that, that, that opposition is is wrong it is a kind of it's an it's a mistake it's an error it's 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 a distortion it's it's something that's wrong something's going wrong in our cognition that is producing this sense of duality nagarjuna and the kind and and the madhyamaka tradition and the um the um the perfection of wisdom literature that we talked about a little bit which is what nagarjuna is sort of commenting on in a certain way is definitely on the same page in terms of like this duality is is mistaken for for Nagarjuna he's most interested I think it's fair to say he's most interested in a duality between existence and non-existence like one way of thinking about this text as a whole is as like what he's doing is he's deconstructing the binary to put it in kind of like highfalutin but it's true. What he's doing is he's deconstructing the binary of existence and non-existence. He's like, well, you think things exist, but if they were to exist, then like they would have had to come from somewhere. What would it mean for stuff to really come from somewhere? That did not, no, you're trying to come up with this theory of like, well, a cause produces an effect, but like, dude, like, what is what would that even mean? And then you, pretty soon you're like, well, shit, you know, like, obviously, like it's wrong to say that you know things can't really exist for real in the way that we sort of ordinarily take it for granted that they really exist. On the other hand. Um, we'll talk about this more a little later because there's another verse I wanted to highlight. But on the other hand, you want to say like, okay, well things, okay, then things don't exist. It's like, okay, but clearly there's something happening, right? Like you say like, okay, well then nothing exists. Well, no, that's, I mean, do you exist? You know, it's like, okay, well, I mean, maybe not in the sense of having a self, but there's some, something is happening now, right? There is some kind of an experience that is happening. So to say that like nothing exist there is nothing at all like that's also obviously wrong so then what are we left with well you know it's an interesting question but clearly it's nothing that can be rigorously accounted for within a duality of like things exist or things don't exist okay so in much the same way I, and i and i, I really like want to emphasize this i i think it's important to understand nagarjuna is maybe not putting things in terms of like subject object duality the way he's talking about like an existence non-existence duality but other Buddhists do talk that way. I'm certainly talking that way. And um, I think it's a, it, it, it's definitely in the background of what he's doing here. And one of the ways in which you, it, one of the places where it really comes out very vividly is right here when he says, one who sees that which is without mind and eye sense does not see. What would it mean? I mean, I'm trying to imagine if you can, you know, what would it mean to have an experience without a sense of being yourself at the like, origin of that experience as like the with you know like what would it mean how you know to to have that kind of an experience um as it turns out there's like a kind of a rich literature in buddhism of like what 
you know, those kinds of experiences. And, 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 you know, there's, there's some of those, sometimes it's described as just, you know, light as an experience of light. Sometimes in an experience, you know, you, you can see various deities. Sometimes, I mean, there's, there's kinds of different um, descriptions of it, but at a certain level, and it's really crucial, like you're not to, to see, to have a, like whatever it is that's happening in a mind that is no longer, experiencing the world as though the mind were like inside and the world were outside it's not seeing in the way in, in an ordinary way it's not an ordinary kind of experience anymore that is the experience as i was saying before of an arya bodhisattva noble bodhisattva a very high level being um but you know we we can with um with with practice and with instruction from a genuine master and with blessings and you know practice we we can have these kinds of experiences it is absolutely possible um and 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 it's a you know kind of transition moment on the path in fact it's not just possible it's something that we all will i mean in a long enough timeline we're all going to be perfectly enlightened and so eventually one day in this life or some future life we will have this kind of experience and then maybe you'll be able to you know um understand it a little better but but this is a really crucial verse because it's really important to understand like the way we normally see the world is wrong. There's something actually very deeply wrong with it, which is that it seems structured in this way into into a sub, like a phenomenological subject and a phenomenological object. Um, it's a great please go on. It's a yeah, great way uh, to think about it. Is is this to summarize it the way you did? Is what is it like to basically to have experience without an experiencer? if yeah. you will, um, without yeah. eye making and my making, um, which I actually like that translation of the term. Um, and, you know, Chan, uh, Chinese Chan and Japanese Zen literature is very rich. You know, you mentioned that there are, are Buddhist uh, uh, schools or um, yeah, strains of Buddhism that are, have a lot of literature about this. And actually some of the most beautiful and poetic uh, is, is from the Zen school, the both Chinese and Japanese arms of the Zen school. And um, I think that's, you know, uh, how a lot of people come across Buddhism in the first place is, you know, like beautiful little haikus and things like that. And not all of them are are necessarily getting that exact thing. So um, but many of them are. And um, that sort of odd way that they evoke um, certain kinds of experiences is our attempts in, within those cultures and within those schools to somehow put it into words. And obviously... You know, there's a caveat. Oh, you can't be put into words and everything. Okay, that's fine. But still, you can actually, you know, it's the finger pointing at the moon. Just because it's not the same thing as the moon doesn't mean that the finger isn't doing good, important work, right? Same thing, Nagarjuna's text itself is not enlightenment itself. But by, you know, going into these explanations and, and taking you through it, you start to see something that you didn't see before. Um, and, you know, that that experience of, of having... There, there being phenomena um, that are, you know, linked to your body or your mind stream or however you want to think of yourself as an I, not I, a self, not self, that you, you can tell that they're sort of somewhat located in your general area of you, right? Um, but you, if you, in meditation, um, when you start to slip away from that a little bit, you can, you know, there's some Dharma teachers that talk this way. And I personally, I sometimes find it a little too trite and irritating when they're like you know there, there's a lot of instructions in some schools i can't even remember which ones uh, teachers i've heard saying things like you know don't say i think this you just think there is thinking um if, if you're angry you say there is anger right um there's lust etc instead of i am i am feeling lust i am feeling angry 
for me, that doesn't really work to just verbalize. Oh, really? I was going to say, way. for me, I've always found that a very helpful instruction. Yeah, see, maybe I think it's, you know, this is this is great. There's lots of different ways for people to, to latch on to the Dharma. Uh, but having said that, what I will say is that just the other day, I was having what I would, for me, was a, a rather profound experience, a very sort of a signpost um, experience for myself. Um, <laughs> probably not very important in the grand scheme of things, but I, I'm doing the best I can. And I had, um, I was actually in the sauna of all places. And, um, uh, you know, working up my resistance to Corona Chan. And um, <laughs> I really felt like sort of outside of my body for a, a few moments. And I could feel some like tension and tightness that was there, but I was like almost looking down on it. Um, but, it but it wasn't just like that, an astral projection kind of looking down. And I have to say, I wanted to stay there longer because it was such a great feeling. And I was like laughing about it on the inside um, about like, I just, it's so, it's such an amazing experience when you have it, you see so much, but there was another part of me that was terrified, right? That, that, that like wanted to zoom back inside my normal shell that I inhabit. And the reason I even say that is because what's been really helpful for me specifically about this text and about the fact that we've done all these shows on it and, and have been picking it apart is that as a somewhat intellectually minded person myself, it is, it's actually really helpful to have these um, arguments sort of backing it up. It's almost like, don't worry, Aura, there's nothing to worry about. Like this, this is actually the right way to, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be terrified of these experiences. Um, you can let them happen because as you said, DK, there is a, um, there's from one perspective, it, you can almost say that these are inevitable and that on a long enough time frame, this is, this is where, we're all headed and that's where I'm headed personally. But the, the, just a little like sort of personal flavor um, to, to what this text means. Yes, and thank you for that. Um, I the, the only other thing that I wanted to touch on, I think for this chat, or at least the, the big, big picture thing that's important here is um, in verse six, Nagarjuna says, the self is conveyed and non-self is taught by Buddhas. It is taught as well that neither self nor non-self is the case. Then as uh, the authors of this commentary write, they say that the Buddha sometimes explained his teachings in a way that could be taken to express belief in a self is generally acknowledged by Buddhists. But this is taken to be an example of the Buddha's pedagogical skill, upaya, which is often translated skillful means, um, if you might have heard that phrase. For the occasions of such teachings involve audiences who do not acknowledge karma and rebirth and consequently believe that their good and evil deeds die with them. Since this belief led these people to conduct, to conduct rather, that bound them ever more firmly to samsara, the Buddha judged it best that they first come to accept the existence of rebirth. Since rebirth is most easily understood in terms of the idea of a self that transmigrates, this led to discourses that appear to convey belief in a self. That is sutra. So you'll find sutras where the Buddha sort of talks in a loosey-goosey way that maybe sort of kind of acknowledges something like a self in, in the sense of, you know, something that continues along this continuum from life to life. But the Buddha's pedagogical strategy was to help these people achieve a less deluded view of reality so that they would eventually be able to understand the teaching of non-self. 
This orthodox understanding of the Buddha's teachings seems to suggest that non-self is the accepted view for all Buddhists. But this verse goes on to suggest otherwise. It suggests that when the Buddha taught non-self, he was likewise employing his pedagogical skill, so that this too is not to be taken as the ultimately correct account of reality. Uh, I don't really care what Chandrakirti says, but w the point is that like you don't want to get too wrapped up in, you know, like, okay, so there's no self, so nothing, so like this is not, it's like, yeah, but you're, it, the, the point is to avoid fixating uh, reifying, right? The point is to like not to, to abandon all your concepts. It, it, it's really important to understand like we need concepts that go about our daily business. You know, right now um, we're in the middle of this uh, coronavirus epidemic. And, uh, you know, if you didn't have the conceptual ability to like identify, you know, this is food, this is water that needs to be disinfected. Like you're gonna you're gonna have a bad day, right? Or whatever. Two weeks from now, you're gonna have a bad day. Um, so it, it's not that concepts are you know without their a certain kind of usefulness, but at the end of the day, you know, conceptuality is ignorance in the Buddhist tradition, and all these kind of concepts we have of like this exists, that doesn't exist, that all needs to go by the wayside. Why am you sound like you need want to jump in? I'm kind of thinking, like, in terms of what uh, Nagarjuna is actually saying here, when he says, you know, there's no, that the non-self is neither self nor non-self, he's referring back to the idea of the self as a continuum, that there's this kind of continuum of experience, which kind of looks like a self, but isn't really. I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting here. Is that right, or? Could you say more? Just in terms of, when, what, I'm, what I mean is, um, when he talks about there not being a self, he means this in the sense that there is still at least this continuum of experience that we perceive. But it isn't really a self because there's not one thing you can point to as its essence. But at the same time, these experiences do seem to have a certain kind okay, of reality. Okay, but think of it this way then. That, again, so we're, and we'll get there in a second, but okay. Let's say that's the case. Where would this continue? Oh, it, it, is a continuum made of parts? Is it made of individual elements or not? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's made of parts. Okay, so then when the pa first part of the continuum exists, where where is the second part of the continuum? It doesn't. Oh. So where's the continuum? <laughs> you see, so it's important yes. not to, like, okay, you can say, like, we, you know, it's better to talk about a continuum than about a self, but, you know, when you get too wrapped up in thinking about a continuum, you know, even, art, like, you're reifying something that isn't yeah. really real. Uh, it isn't really a thing. The reify comes from the Latin word race, which means thing. So reify is a, you know, it's a uh, master's degree way to say thingify. Uh, but the the point is, you know, you, you don't want to be doing that. You won't, don't like it, it's all kind of on a um, on a on a sliding scale. It's all like, you know, this is, you know, better than that. But it's kind of relative because ultimately none of this can really be, um, you know, it, it needs to be contextualized and as he says in verse 8 which is a really 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 critical verse he says all is real or all is unreal all is both unreal and real and unreal all is neither unreal nor real this is the graded teaching of the buddha and like which is very interesting because normally I and mean, again we've sort of presented it this way and this is sort of the like you know tldr version of nagarjuna is 
Um, you know, Nagarjuna sort of deconstructs this, what it means to deconstruct the binary of existence and non-existence the way we, we describe is to say like, okay, well, things are not real and not unreal and not both real and unreal and not unreal nor real. And we just sort of like throw it out there that, you know, you have this, this uh, tetralemma as it's called that, that it's all just sort of like, you know, none, none of these things work. Okay. Here, in this verse, which is also really interesting, really important, he's saying like, okay, well, it's it's like maybe we're starting from a position that all is real, right? Or maybe for someone who's just a complete nihilist who think absolutely nothing matters and it's all you know just you know, YOLO, JK, whatever, um, that better to say, well, no, you know, all is everything is things are real, <laughs> like you know, karma is real. Like if you do bad things, you will suffer the result. That is real. Okay. But then, like, for people who are maybe a little more sophisticated, you know, you're, you're presenting them as, like, well, actually, you know, the things that you think of as being real, they're actually not quite as real as you're used to thinking of them. In fact, they are unreal. In fact, you know, all of these things that you think of as ordinary reality is, is not really real. But then, you know, maybe you get a, you know, upstart um, student in the classroom who's like, but then is that unreality real or not or what? Is the unreality unreal? And he's like, well, you know... It's, you could say, like, from one perspective, it's kind of real. From another perspective, it's, like, not really real, right? And then um, maybe, you know, that person sort of sits with that for a while, and they sort of have an intuitive or experiential understanding of, like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's neither unreal nor real. But the point is that there's a kind of progression, right? He's, he's, he's saying in this verse that there's a kind of a progression, you could say, you know, in these, in these terms. Obviously, though, again, this really needs to be emphasized. It's he's not saying like, okay, to say that there's a progression from everything is real to everything is unreal to everything is both real and unreal to everything is neither unreal nor real. Like, it's not that he's hitting on like, okay, you know, go home and put it in your notebook. Like, everything is neither real nor unreal, and that's like the final answer, right? Like, <laughs> that's not like okay, so or you know, so what? Like, it it doesn't help you necessarily to just write that as the answer. Like, okay, Nagarjuna teaches everything is neither unreal nor real. Like that, okay, it may be true or maybe more true than other accounts, but like it, that's, you know, it's important to understand this is just one kind of way of talking about something that at the end of the day is just not something you can talk about. It's beyond thought and language. It's an experience, ultimately, of course. And um, yeah, the language is there to, to help us to point out common reifications right but then what he's doing here is he's at pains to not let you reify the anti-reification either right yeah like uh you know this is a conceptual framework to help you reach towards enlightenment but if you then if you then believe that the framework itself has some sort of uh you know meta reality to it uh, that's somehow more real than than the thing it's analyzing then you're also making a mistake and I don't want to jump ahead uh, if we're not ready to. Well, just one finish. last verse on this thing. He said, because the next verse is really critical and it just hits on this topic. He says, not to be attained by means of another, free from intrinsic nature, not populated by hypostatization or reification, devoid of falsifying conceptualization, not having many separate meanings. This is the nature of reality. So repeat for our you know podcast audience. Uh, not to be attained by means of another. It is something that we all, uh, you know, we, we realize it ourselves, right? It's it's something to be realized by each of us individually. It is free. It is freedom, in fact, you could say. Uh, it is it is not 
there is no propuncia. That's a kind of technical term. He, they translated hypostatization or reification. Let's go with that. It is non-conceptual, and there aren't many. There's not many arthas, which kind of like it, yeah, not many meanings, not many points. Like it's devoid. There is no. There's one. It's 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 not multiple, right? You could to say that it's singular. It's better than saying it's multiple. Is it really ultimately singular? Well, it's beyond singular and multiple. I mean, you know, again, this is just a way of talking. But that is the nature of reality. That is tattva. So what were you going to say, Aura? Sorry, I had to unmute myself there. Oh, that's fine. Um, well, what I was going to say is that this all relates. I mean, it all relates to chapter twenty, um, and I wanted to comment on that, but I didn't. I didn't want to just jump. You know, I was hoping maybe we don't have to go and go for it. No, go for chronological it. Chronological order. So. Yeah, that's fine. Well, it, we, yeah, we can. Chapter nineteen is short, and just really briefly, he's saying like, if there is no like, you want to say there's a time, the present past and future like okay well if the present and the future exist dependent on the past then the present and the future would be at the past like if you say that you know if the and then you could say the same if the present and future don't exist there then how could the present and future exist dependent on that any ordering of time you want to say like whatever they're the only time that's like really a like a possible thing that could ever possibly exist is the present and the present for in order to be like first of all it's always already over like as soon as you say like this is the present oh it's gone and it doesn't even make sense to talk about a present independent of a present of a past and a future that by definition do not exist. So what the hell are you talking about when you're talking about a time or past and present future? Doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, right, it's just done. applying the same analysis to past, present, future that exactly. you did to going and goer and yeah. seeing and seer, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, go um, on. Chapter 12. Yeah, so, so for our listeners, chapter 18 was an analysis of the self. Chapter 19, which we just summarized, is an analysis of time. Chapter 20 was uh, is called an analysis of the assemblage, and I'll leave it to DK to talk about whether or not that's a great translation or not. But uh, I'll, I'm gonna let you finish. But first, I'm gonna, no, please go on. Go on. I'll I'll, um, I'll just it's talk fine. about it's totally how, fine. How it struck me, and actually, why did I uh, pause there a, few, a couple minutes ago when I had to unmute? There was this little thing. It's because I was actually over on Twitter about to write a reply to our friend uh, Andrew on Twitter, who's uh, always left some. Uh, sometimes leave some excellent comments in our chat and uh, uh, has had a great discussion with him on Twitter. So thanks as always for the um, excellent engagement, my friend. And he was just asking underneath the tweet I sent out um, because I mentioned analysis of the assemblage in the announcement tweet for the show. And he's just asking simply by assemblage, are we referring to the skandhas? And I was about to type the answer and the answer is for the listeners, no. That's not what we're talking about. The skandhas or uh, aggregates, as they're commonly um, uh, uh, translated, is something else. And we already talked about that. I'm not going to go back over it right now. The assemblage is something that Nagarjuna is kind of just coining here um, in the context of this um, of this text. So we, we way back in chapter one, we talked about the seed and the sprout and the idea of causation. And the early chapters address this from different angles. Is the seed the same thing as the sprout? No, obviously not. Does the seed cause the sprout? Uh, surprisingly, if you haven't read the text or follow the, the surprising answer is no, it doesn't cause it. And Nagarjuna explains why. And then you're, you're left saying, darn it, he's right. It doesn't actually cause it. And, uh, you know, it would take me hours to actually uh, go through and prove all these points one by one, but that's what the past seven episodes were for. So if you doubt me, you can go back and listen to those or just read the text. Anyway, what is the assemblage? The assemblage is, and I really like this um, from the uh, from the commentary, 
talking about, let me just read directly from the commentary. So this is the beginning of the chapter. And where is it? Right. So the second paragraph uh, in the commentary at the beginning of this chapter, they say, now the causal relation is usually thought to be one of producing. To cause is to bring the effect into existence. That is what explains the effects arising. But now that we have distinguished between what is commonly called the cause, example, the seed, and the aggregate of cause and conditions, e.g. the occurrence of the seed together with the soil, the moisture, the warmth, etc., we can just ask what it is that does the producing. Is the aggregate uh, is it the aggregate or is it just one member of the aggregate, the cause that is actually does the producing? So let me parse that in my own terms. Um, basically, uh, oh, actually, if you go forward a few pages, uh, right before uh, uh, verse four, they comment, no matter how closely we look, we shall never find a sprout among the seed, soil, moisture, warmth, etc. Thus, there are no grounds for maintaining that the effect exists in the assemblage. So the assemblage mainly mainly just means like, Instead of just sprout causing seed, we say, well, no, it's more complicated than that. You need soil, you need moisture, you need sunlight, you need time, whatever that is. And, you know, this, you know, maybe all these things together cause the sprout. And that all these things together is what Nagarjuna is referring to as the assemblage. And he's and so he's basically saying, not only does the seed not cause the sprout, but the assemblage doesn't cause the sprout. And his analysis is the same as it is in many other chapters. But in this case, it particularly blew my mind because he's saying you can't have this sprout without the assemblage, right? There, there is no sprout existing just, you know, in the middle of space all by itself without any causes, right? But at the same time, you can't have an assemblage with a sprout in it and separate the sprout from the assemblage. Um, and you can't have an assemblage with no sprout in it. Like you, you might say, oh, well, I could imagine an area where there was a water and moisture and, and earth and everything, but there was no uh, seed sprouting, but that's a different assemblage. That's not this assemblage. So in other words, and this is like dedicated to the ghost of Storm King, uh, <laughs> I could hear my inner Storm King saying, it's like, it's just there. It's just, it's all just there. None of it, no part of it is not there. And yet no part of it is caused by any other part. It just is what it is. You know, it's like, he was saying, like, just when you're looking at the leaves in the forest, like everything is exactly where it should be. And if one single part of it were out of place, it, it, it couldn't possibly exist. Like it's it, <laughs> there's no there's no way around it or into it or out of it in any in any possible way. It's the, the assemblage itself is uncaused and uncausing. Um, so the whole world, like every every bit of experience is exactly where it needs to be at all times and nothing is causing anything else ever uh, <laughs> and if that sounds like a stretch that's because it is a stretch i mean that is because it is like this complete revolution in how you how you look at the world and your own place in it i guess yeah no that's absolutely right um on on the on the term assemblage the the thing to understand is like I don't want to get too technical, but basically part of what's going on, an important part of what's going on here is like, he, he's talking with someone who's a little more sophisticated. So like, if you think about it, you know, earlier he's kind of talking to the Grug audience and Grug is like, but you, you know, the seed causes the sprout. 
And he's like, okay, but when the seed exists, the sprout doesn't. And when the sprout exists, the seed doesn't. So what are you even in the grug? is like, oh, I'm going to go and think about that. Now he's talking with someone who's like a little more sophisticated. And this sophisticated person is trying to say, okay, well, it's not that the seed, like, it's not that it, it's not that the seed causes the sprout in some kind of direct, straightforward way. Obviously, you need a lot of stuff just besides the seed. You need, you know, soil. You need sunlight. You need water. Blah blah blah. So it's not that the seed is causing the sprout. It's that the assemblage of all of the causes and conditions is what's causing the sprout. And so, on on the one hand, like you could say, okay, well. Um, that actually fails for the same reason that the earlier analysis fails. Like there's still this same basic problem of like when you have this, all this stuff, you don't have the effect and vice versa. But there's also part of what's going on is it's kind of, um, it, it's, it's, it's also in a way about the same problem as the self, because you could think of it as like, okay, well, is the assemblage, the assembly of all of these causes and conditions, is it some, is it the same as all of those causes and conditions, or is it different from them? Because if the assembly is the same as all the causes and conditions, then like, what it's it's you know then what? So then you remove some of the soil and it's a different assembly. You're like, at what point is you are you even talking about something that is identifiable as the assembly? Like it just. But then you say that it's different if it's just saying its own ontological entity that's separate from all of these causes and conditions. Well, that doesn't really work either, does it? You know, I mean, it, it, it sort of, you get you very quickly into sort of obvious problems of like, okay, well, the, the, seed, the seed and the sunlight and the soil and the water, those are all the causes and conditions, but the, like, the bringing together of them or the assembly of them into like a causal complex is like something else that's not them. Like, it just, it just obviously that just doesn't even make sense. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to to put that out there as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny because for our listeners when we were talking about uh what we're going to discuss for this episode, which chapters and I said let's do 18, 19 and 20 and I was, you know, I was getting all excited to do 20 and I said, "Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we I hope we get to 20 and uh DK is like, "Ah, it's okay if we don't." And besides, that one's not a super important one. I was like, "Oh my god, I love that one." And the funny thing is um dk really wanted to talk about chapter 18 and for me you know it's certainly interesting and everything but i i just you know it wasn't particularly moving for me or anything um and i think that's fantastic that's great because you know what he's doing again is chipping away at these ways that you put things together and if if one of your particular hang-ups isn't in you know let's say chapter four or whatever he's talking about time or going and going i i don't remember which chapter is which but um, and you go, well, I, that one's not really, you know, yeah, I get it. I don't think that way. But then there might be other ones where you're like, holy crap, I've been thinking that way my entire life. And he just pointed out to me how it's wrong. And so different different ones of these analyses are going to hit home to different people in different ways. Um, and that's what's cool about this text is because it's so completist. You know, it's he's so thorough with pointing each one of these out. And interesting, you know, that does make it actually, you know, maybe for you, chapter four is a little on the dull side or something, but then chapter five like blows your mind. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very exciting, you know, just as a, <laughs> you know, it gets me all, gets me all a, a Twitter, you know. That's funny. D uh, on that note, I mean, you, uh, do you have other things you wanted to talk about in this, in this chapter? 
No, that, I mean, that was really it. This, that, that sort of the revelation that the, that the, because you can see so clearly early on in, in, in the early chapters, how one particular thing doesn't cause one other thing, you know, because like you said, they can't be, they're not the same thing. And when does one stop being one thing and start being another? And is there some supposedly some sort of instant when it's neither one nor the other, then how are they connecting across? How are they bridging that gap, etc.? And I think in the back of my mind, I've, the whole time I've been thinking, yeah, yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true. But somewhere I've been holding this idea like, oh, but, you know, it's all it's all together in one big group of things. You know, once I have the sun and the earth and the sprout and, and the seed, then I get the sprout. And that's, you know, without ever actually examining it, I was thinking, yeah, that's what causes that. But here he's like, no, <laughs> it's not causing that any more than the seed is causing the sprout. It's just like uh yeah, it's just like you're dodging around the corner. I sent out a tweet a, a long time ago, a few months ago, you know, sort of uh, uh, summarizing or paraphrasing the way that this text sort of works, which is, you know, you, you're you're in the quarter, huddle, huddled in your corner, clutching your, your reified ideas, and the Garjana, like, comes around the corner with a shotgun. It's like, I see you, you know, I see you reifying, you're like... No, and you like run around the corner and find some other conceptual thing to reify. Like, do do yeah. marine, and your concepts are the demons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and you're like run around the corner and try to hide in a in a different conceptual reification. That the guard, you know, you hears. You yeah. hear his footsteps come, and he comes like, I see you. And you're like, no, <laughs> Nagarjuna, have mercy. You know? <laughs> and that's totally the way it is, um, except for at the end, you don't get shot. You get enlightened. Well, it's like, it's like uh, what was that other, I think it was a hex, I'm, I'm revealing my age and nerd status, but I think, if I recall correctly, there was like a, there was, I don't know if it was Christian, or there was like some kind of like Doom clone where it was like, you're, you're not shooting bullets, you're shooting prayers and they like when rather than die in like a pool of blood the, the simpsons did like, a the simpsons did a, a gag on that with like this was like a real like thing Bible. it was like they would fall to oh, their really? knees and like yeah it was like a real like <laughs> doom clone in the 90s yeah um, there's a there's a simpsons gag where the the uh, ned flanders kids are playing bible blaster or something and you go around and like shoot people with the bible and then they turn into like nice button-up shirt wearing like clean cut people <laughs> it's little it's pretty I'm also revealing my age by quoting The Simpsons. I mean, The Simpsons is... And killing the chat, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, Okay, well, that's probably a good place. And uh, YM, did you have any other further further thoughts? Cool, man. All right. Well, uh, thank everyone for listening. I hope this has been uh, edifying and interesting. As always, if you have any questions or whatever, uh, shoot... I guess you can't shoot me a Twitter message for now because I'm gone from Twitter. But I, 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 there, I think there will be someone. Shoot me one and, yeah, and shoot I'll, or I'll, something, I'll, or yeah, we'll figure it out. Also, I, I'll, I'll be back and you know reincarnated in some form or another at some point. So, until then, uh, take care, and I hope you all have a very nice and safe uh, next couple of weeks. Take care, everyone. <laughs>